welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 8 of the Madden America podcast. Thank you so much for getting in touch and sharing your thoughts, feedback and comments with me. I love hearing from you and if you want to let us know what you think of the podcast or who we should interview or make suggestions, you can email us on podcasts at maddenamerica.com. This week we have an interview with Professor Jim Van Oz. Professor Van Oz is Chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at Maastricht University Medical Centre and Visiting Professor of Psychiatric Epidemiology at King's College Institute of Psychiatry in London. He trained in psychiatry in Casablanca, Bordeaux and the Bethlehem Royal Hospital in London. He is on the editorial board of European and US psychiatric journals such as European Psychiatry, Schizophrenia Research, Early Intervention in Psychiatry and the Journal of Psychiatry and Neurological Sciences. In 2011, he was elected member of the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he appears on the 2014 Thomson Reuters Web of Science list of the world's most influential scientific minds of our time. He is Director of Psychiatric Services at Maastricht University Medical Centre, and runs a service for treatment-resistant depression and first-episode psychosis. I was keen to ask Professor Van Oz about his views on biological psychiatry, why we should sometimes challenge schizophrenia, psychosis, and other diagnostic terminology, and how he sees the future of mental health care. Professor Van Oz, thank you so much for chatting with me for the podcast. Firstly, I wanted to ask a little bit about your background and what it was that led you towards psychology and psychiatry. Yes, good question. Uh... Uh, thanks for uh, inviting me, by the way. It's it's difficult, I think, because these things are, as we say, multifactorial. But I think what played a role was that uh, there was a lot of uh, mental variation in my family, uh, all sorts of uh, things. So I was studying medicine and it really made me think uh, about, you know, what, what, what sort of help people really require because uh, it takes a lot of time for people to deal with mental problems and I saw it was really a, a process not a fix and that people over the years sort of got got insight and uh, self-management and also were thinking differently of the people that attempted to help them particularly the professional uh, helpers so they they sort of uh, began owning things more over the process rather than delivering themselves to the professional that you know who, who would make them better so this this transformation from uh, being a passive consumer if you like of help to somebody who owns his own vulnerability and also tries to compensate it with resilience uh, and uh, uh, you know uh, coming up with self management and thinking differently about things like medication it was very instructive to me and very interesting to me as well so I decided to become a psychiatrist I, well I, I already wanted to become a psychiatrist when I started medicine because I think it's a, such a huge uh, philosophical and cultural challenge really the whole notion of uh, vulnerabilities and, and mental crises and uh, how we view them and how we deal with them. It's its an enormous issue and a lot of work still remains to be done there, obviously. So that, that was 
read what was drawing me in. It really does go to the core of human experience, doesn't it? And Jim, I've heard from others that when they were being trained, the training they received was quite biological in nature and quite rooted in medication as the main intervention. I just wondered, was that something that you started to question in your own training, or was it some time before you started to think differently about the model most commonly used in psychiatry? So I think it's very interesting. So I did my training actually in a number of places. I also uh, worked in places like Indonesia and Morocco, and I did my first year of official training in France, in Bordeaux, and then I went to the UK, uh, and I trained to become a doctor in the Netherlands. Um, and and what was particularly interesting, for example, that I was working in Morocco, and the most popular course there was uh, biological psychiatry from somebody who had been training in, in, in France and was uh, sort of giving lectures about molecular processes and how these would uh, contribute to uh, mental disorders like uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Uh, and then I, I actually I, I went to France and from France to the UK. And uh, in France, very interestingly, uh, there were, you know, there was a lot of interest in biological psychiatry, but there was also a very dominant uh, uh, Lacanian psychoanalytic uh, uh, movement that actually did not oppose uh, itself to biological psychiatry, but merely considered it like an epiphenomenon. Mm. And uh, uh, and then the the way uh, people were receiving diagnoses in France was quite different from the UK. Actually, this was my first paper I wrote, that, that the way mental illness was conceived in these two countries was quite different. Yet, they were hypothesizing also the same biological uh, vulnerabilities or uh, Lacanian uh, postulates, uh, how, how psychopathology would, would arise. So I, th I thought it was all very confusing. Uh, and I couldn't put my mind, well, where, 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 wh what is the truth and how exactly does it work? Uh, but at the same time, of course, there was one dominant uh, approach, and that was everybody was receiving medication. So the, the psychoanalysts would prescribe medication, the Moroccan psychiatrists would prescribe medication, the UK doctors would prescribe medication, and they would prescribe different medications, they would have different theories about uh, the medication. So in France, for example, uh, you would mix medications because they believed mixing medications would be very helpful in dealing with psychopathology. They had special theories about it. Whereas in the UK, this was anathema. You wouldn't do that. You had to have one drug that you would prescribe to patients. So I was sort of asking, well, how solid is, is all this, this knowledge, you know, and how much research is really there to back it up? So I think those, those questions, in a very, at a very early stage, I think I was led to questioning uh, the whole paradigm because of the practice variation I was exposed to and the conceptual variation I was exposed to in different countries and different cultures. Well, I'm grateful, Jim, that you and others like you are willing to look critically at the established models and ask what the evidence is, because I think there's a general perception that diagnostic labels are firmly rooted in science and evidence, but that's not necessarily the case for all psychiatric diagnoses, is it? Yes, yeah. So this is, <clears throat> well, this is actually something I, I learned in France because a, a very popular concept at the time there was called non savoir, so basically not knowing. And uh, uh, it actually led me to embrace not knowing as a core value, particularly in the area of psychiatry where 
the culture of filling the gap of not knowing with knowledge, culture-bound knowledge. Uh, for example, saying there are diseases that depend on brain dysfunction is not core knowledge. It's it's a cultural solution to not knowing and us being shy, telling patients we don't know. Uh, but of course, there's huge implications of filling the gap of not knowing with knowledge that is not solid, uh, but is merely a cultural uh, agreement between professionals to hypothesize things in a certain way. But then we don't realize it's a hypothesis anymore. When we say schizophrenia, what we really mean, this is a sort of a hypothesis, but we forget it's a hypothesis, so we convey it as a thing. And then we forget that conveying things like, like that to patients uh, is an invitation then for the patient to reinvent him or herself along those lines uh, and internalizing the, the idea, I am a diseased brain. Uh, and once people start internalizing that, they are removed from actually uh, the solution. The eventual solution is that you have to own, you have to start to own this this vulnerability in order to start discovering ways of, of dealing with it and accepting uh, it and of trying to discover new goals that are achievable and give meaning to life despite the uh, limitations you you have encountered so this 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 is a very serious problem i think that uh, and in fact i think the whole issue of experience and consciousness is the elephant in the room of of psychiatry because uh, if you look really closely the way psychiatric knowledge particularly biological psychiatry particularly north american uh, biological psychiatry is is uh, conveyed as uh, hardcore knowledge in the sense that people have symptoms and those symptoms are indicators of brain dysfunction. Um, and uh, the whole issue of consciousness and experience and human variation is not there. It's, it's just saying there's a diseased brain, therefore you have these symptoms. And um, the implicit model below that is uh, brain causes mind, uh, nothing more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So the whole issue of what is experience and what is consciousness and what is uh, the relationship between brain and mind is sort of ignored. And it's just reduced to, well, you've got a diseased brain, you have symptoms. And since uh, experience is made by your brain, you are your brain, and if you have a problematic brain, you are your diseased brain. Mm -hmm. So the implicit message is your identity is now one of a diseased brain, uh, and you have to have medications. So you, you really disempower from the very first moment uh, the people uh, with, with these mental crises and experiences from actually accessing those and, 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 and thinking about those and giving them meaning 
and incorporating them in, in daily life. So it's, it's a very difficult problem. It is, isn't it? And it strikes me that patients are almost conditioned to expect a diagnosis as a successful outcome of a consultation. But I think I would have found it liberating if my psychiatrist had said to me, we don't know what causes your experiences, but we can still help you with them. It's the fear, isn't it, that if I can't be diagnosed, it must be something awful and can't be explained or treated. But just because we can't understand the derivation or underlying cause doesn't necessarily mean we can't help someone. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think what what we should do is 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 tell people, listen, you you're you're, you're on a journey now. This is you you've 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 sort of encountered your uh, you know sensitivities or or uh, there there's things in your life that you need to rethink. You're you're on a journey. I I can co travel with you for a while and help you. Uh, and it's your discovery, but but there's certainly help, you know, from other people that that can be brought to bear on what you're going through now. That's a different message, of course. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to see that how how successful between brackets psychiatry has become in society. So what we see, for example, in European countries is that there's an ever increasing demand for mental health services, mm-hmm. uh, and the way we measure uh, mental ill health in populations. Like, you know, for example, we do huge surveys and apply criteria of disorders to the general population. We find there's a 25% uh, yearly prevalence of mental disorder. Um, and we have mental health services that have capacity for maybe 3, 4, 5, 6% of the general population. Like in Germany, there's a well-funded mental health service that has capacity for 6%. In the UK, it's a bit smaller. It's like 4%. So... Uh, uh, and then the big question, so there's a run, you know, from the 25% prevalence, people are running to mental health services in order to receive a diagnosis uh, and, and treatment. Um, and then, uh, of course, nobody knows how this selection takes place, who, who is given, who is selected to become a member of the mental health service uh, provision, if you like, and, and who isn't. But what we see, for example, in the Netherlands, of course, that uh, as more and more bureaucrats are sort of trying to uh, make it uh, possible, because, you know, if you have too much mental health service, it becomes unpayable. There's, there's too much demand, then the service can't you, can't, you can't, you can't provide it anymore. So there's all sorts of selection criteria now for people to come into mental health services, but uh, it doesn't work because you can't predict who is going to have, what sort of outcome people are going to have. So there's a eternal struggle to get into mental health services and waiting lists. And there's nothing uh, in terms of a public health effort to educate people about what is it, you know, what is having a mental health problem? What is feeling down? You know, is it so... Uh, we educate them. Well, it's a mental disorder. You have to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist. We don't educate them. Well, you know, it's 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 got something to do, perhaps, with the way you live your life. Perhaps you you need to make choices. Perhaps it's got something to do. Perhaps it's a spiritual problem. You know, a problem to to do with the meaning you give to your life and the goals you want to you aspire mm-hmm. to achieve. Maybe there's something you need to rethink some of those, and you'll feel better. So this. This whole educational thing of saying to adolescents, you're depressed when they go through a phase of anxiety and depression, and then they go seek help, is, is very dangerous. But we've been educating society now that this is 
this is this is the model. Well, I can confirm that in the UK and the US, and I'm sure the Netherlands and other places too, the public is still talking about chemical imbalances. And it's still talking about chronic mental illness that once you've been diagnosed, unless you rely on something external like long-term therapy or medication, you're unlikely to remit. So the question now is, uh, and there have been people calling for a public health effort to sort of educate the public about uh, mental experience and mental problems. Um, particularly in, in Finland, there's a very powerful public health initiative um, so that uh, you try to reach out to the general population and explain things in a different way so that they won't, they, they, they won't uh, run anymore to become a member of the mental health services and uh, look for different ways. So this is difficult. So some countries, they experience with e-communities, for example. So an e-community is somewhere you can go uh, online to meet uh, people with similar problems, for example. So if you're an adolescent and who experiences anxiety and depression, then uh, an e-community is somewhere you can go and share experiences with other adolescents, uh, some of them who have been through this process for a longer time than you have and can explain to you what you're going through and give meaning to your experience, uh, which which can give quite good results. So then, you know, even before you uh, you have the question, do I need help? You encounter people who explain to you what 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 you're going through and help you see uh, it for what it is. Mm. So the e communities, I think, is quite interesting. We have one in the Netherlands. It's called Proud to Be Me. This is about. Uh, People, you know, girls particularly who experience uh, experiment with dieting and losing weight and have, uh, you know, uh, go through phases of, of looking at their uh, themselves and, and, and how their body shape might interfere with, with their lives. Those are the things. So there's two million uh, girls in the Netherlands contacting each other online in this forum, mm. um, which requires minimal minimal input from professionals just you know they're experts by experience that manage the whole thing and it's it's a great public health resource for young girls to help them you know go through this process of adapting to their changing bodies their changing biology uh, so uh, uh, preventing all sorts of, of of other things and preventing also that it becomes labeled too soon as a mental disorder needing admission, needing all sorts of other things. Mm. Uh, and there's other examples now internationally of, of these. Uh, well, Mad in America is, is a very good example as well. It's not it's not a forum for, for people with certain experiences, but it is also a public health initiative. That's how I see it, of mm. educating people that there's a critical debate. It, it doesn't say like, you know, psychiatry is, 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 is bad, but it tries to constructively reinvent and transform the effort that professionals, you know, apply in psychiatry to a to a to a better model that's more uh, that that's more health promoting rather than disease promoting. That's so important, isn't it? And you made me think, Jim. I've been struggling myself with a diagnosed mental illness for a number of years. And in my experience, what's so helpful about being part of an online community is that I can see a number of people whose experiences are similar to mine. But equally important is that I can also see a wide range of experiences that are very different to what I've been through. And that makes me appreciate how wide these definitions need to be. 
And yet, when I went to see my own psychiatrist, it was a case of you are diagnosed with this and therefore you are the same as all the other people in this category and this is the way we treat it. Yeah. And, and uh, I think there's, there's also now an economic argument driving this uh, persistence of, of, of the diagnosis and the disorder uh, culture because in, in the UK uh, there's commissioners commissioning mental health services and then it's measured in terms of the output is the number of people diagnosed with a certain disorder. The epidemiological surveys are also counted in terms of the number of people diagnosed with a certain disorder. Uh, managed care in the US is all about diagnosis. Many countries, you can't even get into mental health services without first receiving a diagnosis. Otherwise, your insurer won't pay up if, if there's no diagnosis. So there's a whole uh, economic perpetuation, I think, of, uh, of, of the construct of, of conceptualizing mental suffering as something diagnosable uh, because of an underlying brain disorder. Mm. In the DSM-5 committee, uh, I was a member of the DSM-5 committee, and the initial uh, uh, attempt was to dimensionalize DSM-5, so as to portray mental suffering as something that can go along dimensions from a little bit to very severe right across the different diagnostic disorders so much more fluid uh, and natural actually and closer to what we actually see and measure in the general population however uh, it was shut down halfway the process uh, apparently because well the committee said it was too difficult because there were, you know, what are the dimensions and how should they be measured? And it's going to be very difficult and reliability, etc. But uh, the real reason, perhaps, this is what somebody told me, it was on the board of the APA, is that there was this fear that if we were going to dimensionalize, if you like, liberate mental suffering into dimensions, making it human because it goes from a little bit to 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 a lot then insurers might also start to dimensionalize their reimbursements from a little bit to uh, a lot and this is something that nobody really wanted because the dichotomous reimbursement issue gives you clarity and you can calculate and you can project and you can measure much more easily uh, than sort of this dimensional you know fluidity of of mental suffering so it wasn't done in the end and i think it would have been historical if it had been dimensionalized cross diagnostically because then the story would have changed the story a clinician would have would would, would have to tell a patient you know a, a diagnosis wouldn't suffice anywhere he would be asking well we're going to measure your dimensions and then somebody would ask well what are those and then he would say well these are really you know, this is really mental experience measured from uh, across a severity spectrum, um, and and it would have been different. So there is, though, a little bit of dimensionality in DSM-5. I think this is very encouraging because autism actually now is dimensionalized in DSM-5 in the sense that it's it, it's not anymore a rare disorder, which is was even ten years ago. It was considered a very rare brain disorder. Now it is a spectrum and uh, they call it a spectrum disorder, which is strange because, you know, what is that? So I, I see it as the first admission that things are 
occurring across a spectrum uh, with a lot of variation from person to person. And it's the closest, I think, DSM-5 got to saying, well, the things we are dealing with are our human experience that vary from person to person across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. It's the same with addiction. Uh, there used to be dependence, there used to be abuse. Now it's just 11 criteria. And, and the more you have, the higher the score uh, on your addiction spectrum or dimension. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's progress. Uh, it's a little bit, but it's progress. And I think the next phase will be that there's going to be a spectrum for psychosis. People are going to say, well, this is really a spectrum of human experience that can go from one you know, from, from a little bit uh, to, to a lot. Uh, and you actually have a psychological understanding. The, the spectrum thought is so important because it allows you to have a psychological understanding of what you mean by what is varying across the spectrum. You can't say uh, it's a disease anymore, so these people are abnormal and they've got extreme you know, brain disease, therefore... Is that because if you say it's a spectrum, it means there's a connection with human experience at the lower end of the spectrum. And then what is that experience that you can make a connection to? For example, in the case of schizophrenia, what is it in normal mentation in the general population that connects to the experience of patients that are labeled or diagnosed with schizophrenia? Mm-hmm. So that it allows you automatically to have a different way of thinking. That, that's what I like. So now, you know, as TED Talks of people saying, well, I'm, I'm in the autism spectrum and, and I'm, I'm quite high. And that means you are neurotypicals, um, you know, and neurotypicals can't really, can't well understand what, 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 what you know, how I function. So I, I'll explain it to you because it's a very rich way of, of it can be a very rich way of perceiving the world and, 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 and dealing with your environment because I can focus and I'm not distracted as much as you are by all sorts of social uh, issues. It can also be uh, it can also become a, a vulnerability, but it depends on the circumstances. So this is a very natural way of explaining things. So that's why I like the spectrum. It's certainly a step forward, isn't it? And Jim, you mentioned that psychosis is probably part of normal human experience from time to time. It strikes me that that's still a challenging statement to many that are biased towards biological psychiatry. And schizophrenia, psychosis, and other such experiences, should they be in the DSM at all? Should they be a diagnostic category? Or are we risking labeling normal human experiences something it isn't? Yeah, so I, I think that's a fascinating uh, question and, and very good question because, uh, uh, you know, the whole thing is do we really need a DSM? D- so basically DSM is a sort of an effort to educate the people that we see uh, mental experience through the prism of pathology and medicine and diseases. Uh, but you can also say, well, uh, why don't we see it through the prism of variation, uh, mental variation uh, in, in the general population that can go in all sorts of directions um, but sometimes people may develop need for care. Um, so maybe what we should focus on is when people feel they're stuck and they 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 need help, you know, by by experts, by experience, by psychologists, psychiatrists. 
um, maybe that's what we should be diagnosing. So we could say, well, you know, people can run into mental crises or they can have significant mental suffering, but it's not the diagnosis that they need is what they need is uh, help in determining what, what, what is the matter. So what is happening to you? What has happened in your environment? What has happened to you? What have, what have you experienced in your life that you now have come to this point that you're stuck and can't go any further? If that's the first question, and if you say, well, you know, I'm prepared to travel with you for a while and see if I can contribute to you solving your, your problems, and you know, if you want, if you want, I, I, I've got a range of psychotherapies I can offer. I, I even got molecules you can try, although we've, you know, we don't know very well what they do. Uh, and once you're on them, it's, you know, maybe difficult to get off them, but you can certainly try it, be my guest. Um, that, that's a different discourse. So I think um, uh, the whole idea that there's something that needs to be diagnosed rather than that people need to develop insight into what is happening to them and why, uh, that, that is going to require a, a defocusing on diagnosis as the first step. Um, and we, we always say, well, people are so relieved when they know what is, what is happening to them, and they're so relieved when they have the diagnosis. And this is something what I saw in my, in my relatives as well when I was young. Well, okay, so they, they got the diagnosis, but by the time they received their ninth diagnosis, you know, they were completely fed up with the system, and it wasn't a relief anymore. Um, so there's a downside to that as well. And, of course, you can also give a diagnosis saying, well, you know, uh, okay, you can say, well, it's not completely random, the expression of mental suffering. Indeed, you can say there's there's 10 different ways you can think about this. So, you know, if if if, if mood is predominant, you can call it the mood syndrome. If, uh, you know, if it's about social interaction with other people, you can say, well, it's it's sort of, you know, that, 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 that it, it's in that direction. If it's trauma-related, you can call it trauma-related syndrome. If it's about... Uh, hearing voices, you can say, well, you have hearing voices. You can, that's the diagnosis. You can just describe. That's why people like the diagnosis, I suppose, of depression. When you're at a party, you say, I've got depression. Well, people won't run away from you because they know depression is about mood. I've got mood and I know what it's like to be down so they can relate to you. But if you say, I've got schizophrenia, people haven't got a clue you know, what sort of mental experience you're referring to that they can relate to their own psychology. So they, they don't know what to say and, 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 and run away from you because they're afraid of you. Hmm. So the, the, I think if there's going to be a diagnosis, just make it something that people understand and can relate to their own experience. Uh, so you can say, well, you know, I, I, I have, I, I hear voices, um, you know, and in the beginning, uh, I, I didn't understand what was happening and I had a mental crisis and, and I spoke to people and they helped me. And now, you know, I, I've got a better relationship with my voices and I'm okay. So then that's also a way of, of diagnosing the problem, but uh, you're actually telling people what, what happened to you. So it, it's, it's a much better way, I think. The concept of diagnosis and how it can help people, yes, but not not by giving a, a disease, but by giving something that that relates to their experience and that they can explain to other people and that other people can relate to their psychology 
So then there's understanding all over, I think. It's key, isn't it, for people suffering mental distress to be able to reach out and find where they can identify with others. And following on from that, Jim, you used the phrase hypermeaning at a TEDx talk in 2014. And I really like that. It sounded so much more approachable and understandable than psychosis. Is the diagnostic language, medically-based terminology and labelling used in psychiatry part of the reason that it comes in for so much criticism, do you think? So, so I think that's, that's uh, key. Um, so we have, we, we, we have a user research centre, and uh, this is actually one of the questions we discussed a lot in the user research centre. What, you know, what, what is the words that, that, that you can connect uh, to, to connect the experience to the general public if you if you are diagnosed with psychosis and then uh, uh, and this is also that that's something that was discussed in the scientific field like aberrant salience uh, you know to link that to psychosis but then of course you can make that simple and just say well it's about the way we attribute meaning to our environment that's a very key process that really defines us uh, and drives a lot of our experience. And of course, there's variation. It can go in all sorts of directions. And sometimes we can be frightened by it or uh, we can be, we've had experience in our life that make that, 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 that we, we, we tend to develop, uh, you know, very anxious interpretations of the environment. Um, so uh, the word schizophrenia doesn't convey anything about that core issue that also people who have been labeled with psychosis or schizophrenia uh, can well recognize this meaning aspect or hyper meaning attributing too much meaning to the environment um, and actually uh, can also explain to other people then what, what, what it is they're experiencing. So um, I think if we continue to use the word schizophrenia and continue to feel very defensive about it in psychiatry. Um, you know, I saw the, so, so the, we, we, we're never going to be able to solve this connection problem we have with the people that, that seek help for mental distress and, and receive this diagnosis. It's a core issue, and I think it's one of the core issues that psychiatry gets criticized for, and also that psychiatry is not helping to solve, really. So um, we have a patient organization in the Netherlands and they published a paper in, um, in psychological medicine. And they wrote also to the DSM-5 committee explaining this. And they said, well, we've got an alternative for you. Uh, can you please include that in DSM-5? And they say, it's the, we, what we like to include is psychosis susceptibility syndrome, yeah. which uh, I think doesn't go far enough because psychosis is still a bit uh, sort of a mystifying word. So uh, something like like hypermeaning uh, susceptibility syndrome or, or becomes very complicated, of course. But but I thought it was it was good in the sense that a what they tried to say was that it's not a disease; it's a susceptibility, not even a vulnerability, but a susceptibility. So some people are very susceptible to attributing lots and lots of meaning. Uh, that also, of course, can be very advantageous and very important uh, in, in the arts or in the expressions. Um, so you tell people, look, you've got this susceptibility. You have to learn to live with it. You have to get to know it. Uh, that's totally different than saying you've got a brain disease. 
And this, and uh, they call it syndrome. I also like that because syndrome basically means in medicine we don't know. So it's a, it's a very nice way of saying we don't know, but what we do know is that it's a susceptibility that differs from person to person. So those principles I like very much. And then uh, I think we need a word like uh, low, low, being low, being low of mood or being anxious. Uh, and in the case of psychosis, it could be hyper meaning or attributing too much meaning to help explain it psychologically. So to, to their credit, I think psychological medicine is now going to publish a paper next month. Uh, we wrote about uh, the slowly dying concept of schizophrenia, hmm. because I think very interestingly, uh, it is a concept. It's at the core of, of, of everything that is, that is, that needs to change, that needs to be transformed in psychiatry. And it's slowly dying. But I think professionals and those who provide education in psychiatry do not realize it yet enough that it's slowly dying. But you often have that, that when the concept is really dying, the professionals become more and more defensive until all of a sudden it's gone. And, and what I think is, because it's such a symbolic issue, schizophrenia, the diagnosis, uh, it's where the you know biological psychiatry really has been trying to reverse engineer the concept of schizophrenia by looking at case control differences. So scanning people, taking their blood and, and doing uh, all sorts of biological procedures to show differences. And it didn't even matter if they were interpretable or replicable. The, the, the key issue was to find differences, helping to reverse engineer and validate this concept. But I think with the advent now, uh, science has been sort of looking at itself as well. And you now have science in transition and you have meta research. You have people like the open science uh, movement and uh, John Ioannidis who goes on about, you know, we keep producing false positive findings and that, that's not the way science should proceed. So science is now correcting itself. And I think in the process, uh, this whole notion that you have cases and controls and that science needs to find differences between them so that we can say it exists. Uh, a recent example was the Enigma study in Lancet Psychiatry in, on ADHD that Mad in America has been paying attention to. And th they said, we found five differences between cases and controls in this massive study. Therefore, we have proven it is a brain disease. Um, so that, and, and it's interesting to see, uh, I know uh, authors on that paper who told the first author, don't do this, it's rubbish, you can't say that. And still the paper was published and still the paper was accepted. So I think uh, to their credit, the consortium, the Enigma consortium that was behind this, there were a lot of people who were bored, you know, by aghast that, that this was the message. And we're actually very glad with letters that appeared in Lancet Psychiatry saying, uh, and, and the attention Mad in America paid to the, the issue. So um, the language and the concepts and the diagnostics and how that is going to change is really now at the forefront of, of people's attention on the fringes. And I think mainstream now is also... Uh, developing more awareness so the fact that we have now uh, uh, an editorial in psychological medicine and that we can talk about this in very critical terms 
shows that I think psychiatry is is changing and taking the matter at heart. That's so important, isn't it? And Jim, I just wondered, if we look to the future and we look to an inclusive method of supporting mental health rather than an exclusive diagnostic or compartmentalised approach, what messages would you give to a group of trainee psychiatrists to help them move towards that vision? Well, I think, paradoxically, uh, I think the best way to go about this is to tell them don't work in the mental health sector because the mental health sector should disappear as a sector. The problem is, is that mental health is a sector, but it shouldn't be a sector because human experience is not is not compartmentalized in, in mental and somatic and local with your GP. So I think mental health sectors should reinvent themselves as inclusive communities, local communities that are there to connect with people, to give hope, to provide empowerment, to provide meaning and acknowledge the incredible difficulties that people have because of mental distress. And you don't do that by being a mental health service, receiving people in your office and giving them a diagnosis and seeing them every two weeks for half an hour or an hour for psychotherapy or for medication control. You do that by being part of a local community together with people with lived experience, you know, uh, preferably maybe a third of the, the staff of such a local community needs to be people with lived experience who can help connect where you can go to and see the same person or persons. Or if you don't like your local community, you go two blocks down to another community uh, outside your living area. But it's not about neighborhood. It's about being able to connect with the community. That's what people that, uh, with, with lived experience, a 20 year of literature of people with lived experience has been summarized in these principles. They're called the chime principles. But people really want this community, hope, empowerment, identity, meaning, and acknowledgement of the incredible difficulties they have and, and that the people work with them. So I think you know, mental health services should reinvent themselves as local communities where you can do open dialogue, where you can do uh, connecting, uh, where you can work with GPs very closely, also because somatic health is a big problem uh, very often goes accom that accompanies mental distress. And also very close to social services, of course, local social services, because you need work, you need social participation, you need access to, to all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, trainees should, I think, become aware that what they need to do is become part of a community, that that is their goal. And then what, what, why, why do we need psychiatrists? That's an important question, I think. Do we need psychiatrists? And what I think is important is, for example, I've got a colleague who's seen, who has prescribed at least to a thousand people uh, antidepressants and know what these molecules can do and can't do and why they, uh, and how they can make people worse or ill or psychotic even as well. So I think that type of experience is important. If you want to call that a psychiatrist, that's fine. Mm. But it's not the knowledge that we need of psychiatrists. It's their experience. For example, in uh, lithium is a good example. It's a molecule. Sometimes it can be helpful. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I have relatives who really swear by lithium, and it has severe side effects. But they 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 do take it uh, because they found out it it helps them. 
So you need somebody with incredible experience with prescribing lithium. Uh, and then you can call it a psychiatrist or you can call it a psychologist. And the same with psychologists. Psychologists, you know, psychotherapy is, is fantastic, but do we, do we, does everything need to be behavior, cognitive behavioral? Does everything need to be preceded by CB? Uh, uh, or, or can you also say, well, you know, mindfulness is, is a fantastic way of looking at your own mind from a distance and, and you know, learning how, how your mind works and how you can also let things go uh and and it's and and uh, you don't you don't maybe you don't need to to have uh, eight years training in psychology learning everything about the brain and learning everything about uh the cognitive models of the mind maybe you just need a lot of experience uh in 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 yoga or meditation and you can call that a psychologist and also i think what is also clear from psychological research, it's often it's not the technical ingredients of psychotherapy that, that, that make things work, but the, the relationship, of course. So I think uh, we should tell psychologists and psychiatrists, you're practitioners that can add people to bring about change by investing in a relationship. And how do you do that? And, and what is that? You know, and it's not just empathy and authenticity. It's also the ability to go into a real conflict with another person and resolve it. You know, sometimes people get better through conflicts with other persons. Uh, and and it's, so it's not, it's not just, you know, being empathic and, and compassion. It's all very important, but also sometimes conflict is a very good way of working with, with change. Um, so I think, uh, it's going to be quite different in the future and, and the way we see a psychiatrist and a psychologist and the role of people with lived experience in the community. Um, but those are the things I think we are sort of gravitating towards. And it's very difficult because the whole reimbursement system is now revolving around diagnoses mm. and guidelines of for average patients from randomized controlled trials that may not be applicable at all to individual patients. And that also tend to have a, you know, a sort of a notion of everything is, we, we can make, we can make people and, and we can control everything because of evidence-based uh, practice, forgetting about that patients actually indicate, those with lived experience indicate what got us better was connection and community and meaning and empowerment and identity. Uh, so services are not, for example, now uh, designed to facilitate, for example, the process of developing a narrative of your mental distress, which we know is a very important aspect yeah. of, of getting better in, in connection with other people. We don't, we don't provide that. And when we do, we say it's a three letter word technique. That, that professionals can be trained in. So we, and then we do randomized trials to see if it works. So I think that that's still a little confusing, I think, to uh, how, how we should deal with that and how we should transform mental ser health services uh, to not be mental health services anymore, really, but to uh, be transformed into communities. That community response is important, isn't it? And it does strike me that there's an opportunity for psychiatry to move towards a more holistic, multidisciplinary approach to supporting people, but only perhaps if it reduces its adherence to the biological model and reliance on medication. 
While you were talking, Jim, you reminded me of something I saw in a documentary the other day. A multidisciplinary medical team were discussing ways to best support their patients and the importance of nutrition. And someone at the back asked the question, do we know if our patients can cook and know what a healthy diet is? So they built kitchen facilities and brought in people to teach cookery. And I thought that was revelatory. Fantastic. Fantastic. So those that, that kind of thinking really is 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 if you can if you can sort of bring that kind of transformation and implement it at all levels, because, you know, it's, it's about cooking, it's about making relationships, it's about having a roof over your head. It's, it's about what to do when things, when you're not well and you need respite for a few days, all those things with a little help can be, uh, can be, can be implemented, of course, but it's outside of the box. It's outside the box still. Thank you, Jim. And as we come towards the close, I was reading with interest your involvement in work to help the users of psychiatric medications to withdraw gradually and safely over time. And I just wondered if you could help me understand how that works. Well, one of the interesting things, I think, is, is user research. So the, there's a few user research centers in, in the world. There's one in London. We've got one here in, in Maastricht and Utrecht. And I think one of the most brilliant invention, interventions uh, that was that came from a user research center was an intervention, an in, invention by Peter uh, Grote. You mentioned his name earlier, who is somebody with lived experience in the area of of depression and uh, asked himself, "Well, I've been taking antidepressants for ten years. Do I need them?" And uh, organized a randomized controlled trial with himself uh, uh, with tapering strips, allowing him to very, very gradually because the commercial doses don't allow you to taper gradually. So he uh, made tapering strips for himself to very gradually reduce, but also he it was double blind. So he didn't know, he did it for a year. He didn't know when the tapering would start. Um, so he did a randomized controlled trial with himself and then following what happened to him as he continued to take medication, but he didn't know when, you know, how much dose would be, when the tapering would start, etc. And then he had experience of mental distress, of depression, of anxiety. He recognized him as being part of the old uh, problem he, he had had. And uh, he unblinded himself, saw that he had been tapering. Then he took the antidepressants again, and he felt better again. But for him, it was a very worthwhile experience because he's, Nick, he, is nearly, he nearly halved his dose now compared to the previous dose. So he says, okay, so if I need them, Maybe for the time being, I'll take them, but I only have half the dose. So the, the load, the medication load is a lot less now for my body. And he's happy with that. And I think uh, that's a very important lesson. I think when we prescribe medication, we should do it in such a way that people are allowed to follow what is happening to them so that they can make their own judgment on whether this stuff is helping them or not. He did it by intensive monitoring of experiences mm. using a technique called experience sampling. Um, so I think we should not prescribe medication and then two weeks later ask people, do you feel better? No, we should ask them, monitor yourself. Mm. Uh, look for changes in experiences. And then after two weeks, I want you to come back and report to me how this drug is affecting you. Is it making you worse? Is it making you better or don't you feel anything at all? Um, and of course, the tapering issue is very important. We shouldn't describe drugs that are very difficult to then stop, which basically are all psychiatric drugs. They're very difficult to, to stop. So I think 
uh, we should we shouldn't be thinking anymore in terms of I'm going to prescribe for your, for for a couple of years or lifelong. I think we should develop models that, like we have for benzodiazepines for minor tranquilizers now, that that say well you can get them a few weeks, but then you should stop hmm. because they're addictive. Maybe we should have a model with for, with antipsychotics, for example, saying well if you're in 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 complete distress and you need something really to 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 ring you down you can take antipsychotics maybe for a few weeks or a few months but then you should learn to deal with your experiences mm. like you do with anxiety in 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 psychotherapy uh maybe you should learn to deal with your psychosis as well with your your experiences like hearing voices or being uh, extremely distrustful uh, because if you're not exposed to them you can't learn from them if you only suppress them then you can't learn from them. So maybe we should have models where we use the medication just to vary, to, to bring experiences down to the level that you can learn from them so that you can taper off your medication. Hmm. So tapering strips, I think, are, are very important. They should be reimbursed. They're not reimbursed now. So you get reimbursed to take medication, but you're not reimbursed to get off medication. And I think they should be as important in our... Uh, in our daily practice as uh, getting people on medication. And of course, the whole issue of, of whether medication works at all, the antidepressants, it's very difficult. So probably what we see is that some people have benefits by antidepressants. There's, there's few that undoubtedly have some sort of response that, that is brilliant. But uh, there's a lot of people that that it's unclear whether it does anything. And if it does anything, it's, it's through the relationship with the prescriber. Mm. Um, so I think we should be much more careful in concluding that people got better because of the medication when in fact they got better because for the first time in their lives, they shared their experiences with somebody who was listening to them. That can be such a powerful experience that, that it starts changing things already. And then we say, well, he got better because of the antidepressant, where in fact he didn't. So we should be much more careful in concluding that people, that there was change because of the antidepressant. I think this is such valuable work and has the potential to help many users of these medications and will help doctors too, because it's a shared approach, isn't it? It's that marriage of professional medical expertise and lived experience that makes the most difference, isn't it? Jim, thank you so much for your time today. It was such an interesting discussion and I'm very pleased to be able to share this with the listeners. No, we covered a lot. Thanks very much. It was a great interview. Thanks very much, James. I'm so grateful to Professor Van Oz for taking the time to talk with me for the podcast and I'm sure you found the interview engaging and enlightening. Madden America News and Updates On MaddenAmerica.com we wanted to let you know that the Medication Withdrawal Resources page has recently been updated. This page lists providers for support, educational courses, personal stories, websites for advice, research studies, literature surveys, and video content too. If you need help or advice regarding your psychiatric medications, this is a very good place to visit. From the Madden America front page, choose resources from the menu, then drug info, then drug withdrawal info. If there are resources that we should consider adding to the page, you can let us know by emailing the details to info at maddenamerica.com. Finally, if you're listening in iTunes, please leave us a review and a star rating. Your review will really help to get others listening to our great selection of guests. So thank you so much for listening, and please come back next week for another episode. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.